This is episode number 290, Healthy Striving and Psychological Flexibility with Dr. Diana Hill. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about how to live a high-performance life, spanning the categories of mindset, plant-based nutrition, and inspiring stories to help you be better every day. From my perspective, acceptance is one of the core processes involved in human flourishing. Oftentimes, I won't even start with the word acceptance with clients because of that reason, because it's like, oh, I'm not going to accept my mother-in-law or I can't accept, you know, my boss is a jerk. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about actually even accepting anything outside of yourself. But acceptance is really an inside job. By an inside job, it's how are you relating to what shows up under your skin that's uncomfortable? When you show up with acceptance and you relate to that with acceptance, you are doing things like making space, being willing, turning towards, allowing, letting go. Those may be some other words that feel a little bit more accessible than acceptance, because oftentimes we think acceptance means approval or resignation. The relationship that we have with ourselves in our inner life is critical to living a high performance life and even, dare I say, just living a psychologically rich life. And today I'm excited to introduce you to Dr. Diana Hill. She is a psychologist who focuses on acceptance and commitment therapy. She has an incredible podcast called Your Life in Process, and she co-wrote the book, The Act Daily Journal, which I highly recommend. Dr. Diana Hill specializes in evidence-based and compassion-focused approaches. Diana started as a biopsychology major and also practiced yoga and mindfulness to help her manage her struggles with anxiety and eating. And after her undergraduate degree, she went for her PhD in clinical psychology. She became the clinical director at La Luna Center, an intensive outpatient center for eating disorders that embraces feminine and holistic integrative approaches to healing and designing programs centered around ACT or acceptance and commitment therapy. She went to CU and she practiced yoga in an ashram and learned so much about herself and about where she wanted to take her career. After becoming a mother, Diana moved back to Santa Barbara and started a private practice. And to stay on top of the most current psychology research, she started a podcast called Psychologists Off the Clock with her colleague, Dr. Debbie Sorensen in 2016. And they've had multiple co-hosts and the podcast is still going on today. In fact, that is how I found Dr. Diana Hill, and I highly recommend that podcast as well as her own podcast that I have already mentioned. I love listening and talking to Dr. Diana Hill because we have a lot in common, and we really like talking about how to strive from a healthy place. And she recently put out a podcast about skillful striving. And a lot of people listening to this podcast are strivers. We want to accomplish goals. We we like to push ourselves. We like to see what we have inside of us and what we're capable of. But that can get really complicated really fast. If you've listened to this podcast or you read my newsletter, and P.S., if you want to subscribe to my newsletter, it's sonyalooney.com slash newsletter. I send out an email every single Monday. But whenever we are trying to strive, sometimes we get hung up and caught up on the wrong things and we start focusing on the wrong things for external validation or we can just get caught in traps that make us forget why we're doing it in the first place. Adopting a mindful approach to your striving and your goal setting is a great place to start and also understanding what your values are. Those are some things that we talked about in today's podcast, as well as psychological flexibility and the six core processes of ACT. 
And again, ACT can be adopted. uh, That's acceptance and commitment therapy practices. Those can be adopted by anybody. And there's a layman's version of this type of therapeutical skills that you can apply to your life. I personally have found all of these principles helpful and just a great backbone to what I'm already doing. And I, again, encourage you to pick up the ACT Daily Journal because it's a really great way for anybody to just learn about it and easily apply it on a daily or weekly basis. We talked about the importance of resting, even though you feel guilty. We talked about enoughness, being efficient with your time and celebrating successes. And I'm sure a lot of these topics are things that you have heard me talk about or that you've thought about in your own lives. And before we get into it, I want to thank our podcast sponsor, Athletic Greens. And I'm really grateful that I have access and have been using AG1, the multivitamin supplement from Athletic Greens. Having nutritional insurance whenever I'm a professional athlete, a super busy mom, and doing all of the work-related activities is something that gives me peace of mind. And it's really easy to take. It comes in a powder form that is highly absorbable with over 75 vitamins and minerals. It covers all your bases, and you don't have to take a bunch of different pills. I know that you can have tons of different pill bottles out if you are trying to supplement, and just having it easy in one powder that tastes good is something that I've really enjoyed. I also like that it has adaptogens in it because a lot of times I'll forget to add those and adaptogens can make such a big difference in how you feel. I also really like that Athletic Greens sets an example and is a climate neutral certified company and they are NSF certified so it's safe for sport. Daily nutrition and even taking a supplement or a multivitamin can help arm your immune system and it's especially helpful right now in this season of worrying about getting sick all the time. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs of AG1 with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash Sonia. That is athleticgreens.com slash Sonia, and that also supports the podcast. Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash Sonia to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. And just a quick note about vitamin D is that most people are deficient in vitamin D, and it's important to get that checked, especially if you don't live in a sunny climate or if you're just wearing sunscreen all of the time. Vitamin D plays a massive role in your immune system. So even if you don't pick up Athletic Greens AG1, make sure you just check your status with vitamin D. All right, so let's get into today's episode with Dr. Diana Hill. I'm so excited to introduce you to her and also to ACT if you've never heard of it before. Diana, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk with you today. Yeah, I'm really excited to have you on the show because I have listened to you on Psychologist Off the Clock and then your new podcast. It's, is it Your Life in Process? Is that the, the name of it? Mm-hmm. I got your it. Your Life in Process. Yay. Yeah. So like what, what spurred all of this type of work that you're doing and, and can you define the type of work that you're doing? Yeah. Well, I'm a clinical psychologist and how I describe myself as a psychological flexibility guide. And what that means is that I help people get more flexible in their lives, more flexible in their thinking, more flexible in their acting so that they can move their behavior towards directions that matter to them. And psychological flexibility is part of this larger concept called ACT. People may have heard of ACT or acceptance and commitment training, acceptance and commitment therapy. And it's been a bit of a twisty, windy road to get there. I think that oftentimes when people ask you, you know, what was your path? It's never like flying from Santa Barbara to New York. It's, you know, the the airplane doesn't go in that straight little line that you see on the screen. It goes ups and downs and lefts and rights. So I was a biopsychology major. 
as an undergraduate, always interested in neuroscience and went on to pursue clinical psychology really because of my own struggles. I had a history of an eating disorder and went to graduate school to find that that traveled with me. And I really struggled my first year of graduate school, ended up withdrawing actually in my first year of my PhD program, went to a yoga ashram and decided that I was going to go back and get my PhD, but I wanted to research things that were more integrative. And at the time people weren't doing, like it was very evidence-based the program I was in and they weren't doing things like mindfulness or embodiment or yoga in research-based programs. So when I went back, I ended up studying with a woman at Stanford, which was one of the few people in the world that were doing mindfulness-based interventions for eating disorders. And that led me on this whole nother twisty turny path of how to pursue the work that I love acknowledge that I'm a super striver and I have to keep that in track and like how to do it skillfully without it harming me and then how to help others. I work a lot with executives and organizations in becoming more psychologically flexible and thriving in their lives and within their organizations. Can you define what a mindfulness-based intervention is? Because people listening might think like, oh yeah, I'm super analytical. I'm super science-y, but what is this mindfulness intervention thing? Sure. There's a number of them and they're actually considered third wave psychology. And what third wave means is that it's sort of built on the back of cognitive and cognitive behavioral interventions. So cognitive interventional interventions, how they would view things would be, if you're having a problem, it's the way that you're thinking about it. And we need to just think differently, right? Behavioral interventions would say, if you're having a problem, it's the way that you're behaving in your life. You need to behave differently. Like get out of bed in the morning. If you're depressed, don't go back in bed. Right. And that's true. There's cognitive interventions have some benefit. Behavioral interventions have some benefits, but acceptance-based or mindfulness-based interventions have a little bit of a different angle, which is sometimes the best thing to do is to be with, to turn towards and Things like anxiety, more often than not, when you experience anxiety, what you tend to do is run away from it. And you take a left turn every time that anxiety shows up. So say you have social anxiety, you're like, oh, I'm uncomfortable. People are looking at me. So I'm not going to talk or I'm going to drink, or I'm not going to go. We take these left turns of avoidance in our life. But what happens is if you take a lot of left turns, you end up going in circles, right? (laughs) And you just go deeper into your anxiety. So a mindfulness-based or a acceptance-based intervention would teach you some skills around how to be more present, even with discomfort as it shows up in your life. And the way that I practice is integrative. I believe there's a lot of benefit to being able to navigate our thoughts differently. There's a lot of benefit to behavioral interventions. Sometimes we just need to move our hands and our feet and then our head will catch up. And there's a lot of benefit to mindfulness-based interventions of learning how to be with our discomfort and turn towards it, especially when turning towards our discomfort is in the same direction of our values. Yeah. It seems like those three waves are not mutually exclusive, but it also seems like the mindfulness-based interventions need to be the foundation because if you don't even know how you feel and you're just trying to like change how you think about something or act a, act a different way in your life, but you don't understand the foundation of what's happening inside your, your head or even in your body, like it would be really hard to make those other things effective. Absolutely. And they, there is a sort of awareness that's needed, you know, Viktor Frankl's very famous line of the space between stimulus and response. So mindfulness interventions help you slow down enough to be able to notice when those spaces are happening. So say if you are, you tend to get into conflict a lot with your partner 
and you just get hooked into the conflict and conflict over and over and over again. With a mindfulness-based intervention, you would be able to start to notice sort of what has led up to that? Like, what are the precursors to it? And then when it's happening, what's hooking you and how can you unhook? And then also, I really do a lot of practices of not only two eyes in, of noticing what's inside my own body, but two eyes out. Maybe what is my partner experiencing that may be contributing to the conflict? Can I get behind his eyes and have some perspective taking or compassion for him? So mindfulness is a really powerful tool. It's a I think it's been popularized a lot in the US and it's oversimplified in a lot of ways. My early training was with Thich Nhat Hanh, And so I traveled to Plum Village in my twenties to go uh, study with him. And his teachings were very simple, but they were also very profound. And he was quite an activist for change. So I think sometimes they get oversimplified uh, in the US, but it's a good intervention to have. What are some ways that it's being oversimplified? I think it's oversimplified in that we start to think that mindfulness is just about being present or observing. And there are sort of different levels of awareness. There's the, the awareness of sort of your five senses. What do I see? What do I hear? What do I smell? There's another awareness that some people would say is your sixth sense, which is what's, what am, how am I thinking? not only what the content of my thoughts is, but what is the quality of my thoughts and my emotions? Um, a seventh awareness would the seventh sort of sense would be what's happening inside my body. And then an eighth sense would be what's happening interpersonally. How are we deeply interconnected? So mindfulness has a component of interconnection to it. It's also oversimplified, I think, because not only is mindfulness about awareness of that, it's also awareness of the spaciousness so we can become aware that we are aware, which is sort of another, that's sort of Dan Siegel's work, but that's another sort of higher level of mindfulness that people practice. Yeah. Something that I think is really exciting and interesting about mindfulness is that it's, there's no end point. It's something that you continually will work on your entire life until you die. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It's an ongoing process for sure. And I think most people are familiar with meditation, but what are some other ways that people can practice mindfulness? If people are like, I don't, I really just am against meditating because some people are really resistant to that. Well, it's interesting because the practice that I, that I teach of acceptance and commitment training actually is one of the acceptance-based practices that doesn't include mindfulness. You don't have to be on a cushion to practice mindfulness. One way to practice mindfulness is just, you know, getting present in your body right now, as you're listening to this, can you feel your feet? Can you feel your breath? Can you just sort of turn those two eyes in and then also getting present in the environment that you're in? So can you turn two eyes out and look at what's around you and then eventually keep one eye in and one eye out. So that's just sort of being mindful as you walk about your life. More often than not, we are just caught up in our thinking. We are overthinkers. We tend to believe our thoughts to be true. We tend to never sort of challenge them or question them. And what is interesting is that oftentimes our head is like the least helpful thing that we, <laughs> that we should be listening to. It's like a terrible motivational speaker, especially when we're struggling. It tends to be highly critical and evolutionarily there's reason, evolutionary reasons for that. Those of us that had highly critical, fearful thought patterns in our, you know, in our ancestry were the ones that survived because it was pretty dangerous out there, but in our modern day environment, it's not so dangerous and our heads can really lead us astray from our values. 
So being mindful is getting out of your head, getting into your body, getting into the moment. And you can do that as a parent. You can do that when you're going for a run. You can do that when you're at the grocery store. You've mentioned the word acceptance a lot. And I think that people hear the word acceptance and they think that that means the same thing as complacency and they don't want to feel stuck or they don't want to feel just resigned. So can you explain what acceptance really means? From my perspective, acceptance is one of the core processes involved in human flourishing. And oftentimes I won't even start with the word acceptance with clients because of that reason. Cause it's like, Oh, I'm not going to accept my mother-in-law or I can't accept, <laughs> you know, my boss is a jerk, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about actually even accepting anything outside of yourself, but acceptance is a really an inside job. And by an inside job, it's how are you relating to what shows up under your skin? That's uncomfortable. When you show up with acceptance and you relate to that with acceptance, you are doing things like making space, being willing, turning towards, allowing, letting go. Those may be some other words that feel a little bit more accessible than acceptance, because oftentimes we think acceptance means approval or resignation, like you've mentioned. And when we start to practice this sort of like turning towards opening up, making space for discomfort, what it allows us to do is be able to make moves in our life towards things that we care about. So anything that you've done in your life that you care a lot about, you're about to become a parent. Is this for your second time or first? Uh, time? Second time. <laughs> second time. Okay. So your parent, there's probably nothing that causes more suffering <laughs> and pain than being a parent. It's like you're signing up to just like feel a lot of pain, right? Anything that has really mattered to you in your life, most likely has had some degree of pain associated with it. And therefore we need to learn some skills to be able to be with pain and acceptance is one of those skills. How do we allow for discomfort to show up and continue to turn towards what we care about? That's a hard task, but it's very doable. and something that we can practice. Yeah. So how, how do we practice that? I like to think about it in three ways, acceptance with the mind, the body and the behavior. So I'll do a little experiment with you right now. All right. I'm in the hot seat. Let's do this. And the listeners could do this too. I like to do things experientially. Okay. I'm going to ask a series of questions. And as I ask them, I just want you to say in your head, no. Okay. All right. Let's go. Do you want to continue listening to this conversation? Are you enjoying this? Do you want to go outside? Do you want to go for a walk? Do you want to talk to somebody else later? So that's a no brain. Okay. No brains shut things down. Okay. I want you to answer these questions now again in your head with a yes. Do you want to continue this conversation? Do you want to go outside later? Do you want to go for a walk? Do you want to talk to somebody else today? Okay. Would you notice in the difference between saying yes versus saying no? Well, first of all, I'll make a joke. Uh, I heard my to my toddler's voice going, no, <laughs> but I notice that whenever I say yes, I feel expansion in my body and I feel a lightness. Mm -hmm. Expansion in your body and lightness. And actually it's appropriate that you said your toddler said no, because this comes from Dan Siegel who wrote the book, the yes brain. And he wrote it for kids of like how to work with your kids to have 
a more of a yes brain because kids are so into saying no. Right. And I'm not saying that you should just say yes to like being oppressed or yes to being abused. I'm not, that's not what I'm saying, but actually yes. Or sort of that stance of openness is a way of approaching life that will lead to more expansiveness and expansiveness is actually a really nice word. That's how we want it. We want to feel a lot of times with the no brain, we feel constricted and closed, right? So that's a yes brain. That's, that's accepting with your mind. Am I willing to have this experience? Yes. And then we can accept with our body by doing all sorts of body-based practices. When we are shutting down or closing off to life, we have a tendency to do a couple of things that are sort of kind of the fight, flight, freeze. We tend to hold our breath. Women in particular tend to suck their bellies in because we've been trained to like suck it in, you know, so we can practice letting go with our belly and we can practice taking longer exhales and taking longer, slower breaths. We can practice letting our shoulders drop and letting go of our face, opening our hands into willing open hands. A lot of times when clients will come to my, my office and they're really shut down, they'll like cross their arms and like hide. So you can open your arms to the side and open your hands. And you can even practice pushing your feet into the ground, which is sort of like an open, expansive feet in the ground, crown of the head to the sky. So those are body-based acceptance, you know, like, am I opening my eyes and my body to what is, and then finally behavior based acceptance is doing things that are important to you saying yes to life with your actions, because ultimately we can think it, but it doesn't really come into fruition until we do it. And sometimes we need to accept with our behavior first. Like I am going to call that person that I've been avoiding, even though I don't want to. And even though I think I can't, I'm still going to do it. And then as I start to do it, I notice acceptance comes, or I'm going to apply for that job that I think that I I'm not good enough for. I'm accepting the discomfort with my behavior by, by applying and putting myself out there. That's kind of comes back full circle to your circle metaphor of going, turning left, turning left, avoiding the anxiety, going around in circles and never actually getting through it because you're avoiding it. What are some other ways that people avoid discomfort with their behavior or their thoughts? Oh, I have a long list of them. And sometimes I list these and I say like, put up a finger for each one of these (laughs) that you, that you do. So we avoid Well, first I just want to say avoidance is a coping strategy to, to pain. We just avoid pain. That's what our brains are designed to do. It doesn't work so well when it's something inside of ourselves. Right. So we tend to do things like numb out and you can numb out through substances. You can numb out through technology. You can numb out through exercise can actually be an avoidance strategy. We tend to distract ourselves with a lot of those types of things. We also, one of my personal favorites is doing, being overly productive. That's what I do too, Um, the most, my avoidance. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So during the pandemic, it was, it was summer of 2020. It was like the dark days of summer of 2020 pandemic times, especially pandemic times as a parent and a therapist. And I started waking up in the middle of the night, so anxious. And I would go and work the middle of the night, like two o'clock in the morning, I'd be at my computer. And I remember that one evening I woke up and I was working and I was just like, oh my gosh, here I am again. I'm doing my thing. This is what I do when I'm really anxious is I work. 
And it's a really old pattern for me. I mean, go back to grad school, right? Go back to eating disorder. Like this is my old history of striving when I'm uncomfortable. And so I sat down and I wrote this list of all the things that are sort of about that avoidance strategy. And it was included things like doing more, but never feeling like I was doing enough, working and neglecting my body's needs, competing with people that don't have the same goals or values that I have, not being present in important domains of my life because I'm so hooked into my productivity anxiety. And so I made this list of like all these signs that I was engaging in that avoidance behavior. And it was really helpful. It's helpful if you, if you are able to start to notice, like, what is your cycle? What do you do to avoid? And maybe it's not striving, but maybe it's drinking, or maybe it's, you know, just you're in a kind of an uncomfortable conversation. So you check your phone chronically, right. Or you rush through, you start, start speaking really quickly, or you don't go, you isolate, you get back in bed. We all have our favorite avoidance strategy and the first step in being able to get out of it and do something different and get out of that, like left turn roundabout is to be able to identify it. So that's where mindfulness comes in. Like, oh, here I am. And then the next step is like, okay, when these cues show up, they're going to continue to show up. This is what I do. What do I want to do differently and why? Like what, what is the outcome that would be different for me if I weren't waking up in the middle of the night writing or working? Why, why is that important to me in the first place? And that's where the values component of ACT comes in is really foundational in this work is figuring out your why. Yeah. I love that you bring up the values-based work and health coach. I'm, I'm a health coach and a huge part of health coaching is integrating values into everything that we do and helping to build intrinsic motivation that way. What if somebody isn't sure what their values are, or maybe their values list is like 30, you know, has 30 different things on it. Like how can people get more clarity around their values? Yeah. You know, one of the things that's gotten kind of popularized with, with values that kind of irks me a little is that we have all these lists and we're supposed to like come up with five, <laughs> like, okay, it's kindness and it's compassion <laughs> and it's adventure. Those are my values, yeah. right? As if our values are words, our values are not words. Our values are not posted on some list or handout somewhere. What our values are, at least in act, are qualities of action that you bring to situations in your life that are important to you. And so they're, they're kind of like the words are sort of like a way of organizing our mind, but they're much more embodied than that. And, and they're ways of being in the world. So one example that I do with clients is I think that there's, there's sort of two angles in to look at our values. I could ask you a question and I'll ask, I'll ask this of you, Sonia, if you were to think about the past 24 hours, everything you've done in the past 24 hours, and what would be one of the most meaningful, sweet moments for you of the past 24 hours? Pretty much any, any time I've spent with my son where he's like displayed affection to me, or I've seen him experiencing joy. Okay. Can you boil it down for me? Like what happened in the past 24 hours where he did, when he did that? So example, uh, it would example? be like, I'm trying to think of a specific example, just like wanting a hug and a kiss, just coming mommy okay. hug. Yeah. Mommy kiss and mommy hug. Yeah. And the connection that that brings and that, that presence too. Cause like, I'm not doing anything else. I'm, I'm looking him in the eyes and experiencing that connection and that it's mm -hmm. truly genuine and authentic. Like that brings me a lot of joy. 
Mm -hmm. And what does it feel like in your body when that's happening? It feels warm, warm. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a value of yours. And we could, we could put a word on it and say, you value connection. You value sort of this sort of genuine being present, you know, presence, right. But it's hard to put a word on that. Mm -hmm. It's more of like how you, how you feel and what you are doing in that moment with your son that is like, oh yeah, that's it. Right. Okay. So I'm going to ask you another question. And this one's a little bit more uncomfortable that people hate to hate to answer. So you just, I'm going to, I'm going to throw you up to, to do it. Um, That's right. I like it. (laughs) Yeah. Who do you envy? Uh, I actually just wrote a newsletter about envy. Um, that was went out today. Yeah. Perfect. Right now I envy people who have better sponsorship opportunities than I do because it's been really hard having two pregnancies in a pandemic for my racing career. So I, yeah, like, and it's mostly, I notice it when I'm on social media and I see, yeah, people that have things that I wish that I had, or that I tried to get and I didn't get. Okay. And what is it about a sponsorship opportunity that you envy? Like, what would that give you? Uh, well, part of it is, and it's not a healthy answer, but it's validation that I'm good enough. Like if, if X brand believes in me or wants to pay me money, well, now I'm worthy or now I'm good enough. And there's imposter syndrome in there as well. Hmm. I'm good enough. Is that something that you value having a feeling of being good enough? To some degree, like if you, if I break it down even further, the reason why I want to feel good enough is because I want to be able to make an impact on other people. And I want people to care what I have to say, because I really want to help people, but there's, it's, it's, it gets challenging because there's ego involved there. And there's like looking externally in comparison that gets intertwined in that. But ultimately when I distill it down, it's because I truly want to be able to reach more people so that I can help them because I really enjoy being able to help people. Yeah. Great. So we start with an uncomfortable emotion and there's also like a little bit of self-judgment around it. Like I can feel that like, oh, I like envy people that have sponsorship positions. That's so like superficial of me, you know, or whatever it is that you may have judgment about. Right. And oftentimes envy is something that we would just ignore, or we would kind of like, not like that part of ourselves as if we don't like our left shoulder. And it kind of like follows us around everywhere, but there it is again. (laughs) And I'm like, damn it, this envy (laughs) will not leave me every time I look over that direction. Right. But actually what you did there was be able to take a feeling that maybe is an uncomfortable one and get underneath it to what your core value is, which is be able to help people. So if every time envy were to show up for you and you were able to feel it's a feeling state and you could turn towards it and be like, oh, cause this is because I care about this thing. It transforms your relationship with it. So in act, we are never about getting rid of stuff. We're always about relating to something differently, whether it's our thoughts or it's about our emotions. The third question that I often will ask people, which is a newer one, and this comes from Daniel Pink, who's got this great new book out called The Power of Regret. He's researched um, like over 4,000 people to look at what are people regretting in their lives. It's a very common emotion that we um, often skate over, like many of the uncomfortable emotions. We say things like, I have no regrets. We all have regrets. Actually, more often than not, we have, we look back on the past, we will have regrets. And he's been able to identify there's these four main areas of regret, things like regret, he calls foundational regrets. Like I wish I wore more sunscreen or I wish I brushed my teeth when I was a kid, right? (laughs) That can lead to some regret later in life. Or then there's also moral regrets. Like I wish that I hadn't cheated on my spouse, you know? And then there's regrets that have to do with boldness. I wish I put myself out there more. I wish I went to graduate school. I wish I 
applied for that, you know, whatever competition, put myself out there. And then the last type of regret has to do with connection. You know, I, I wish I was around my parents more before they passed and I, or I, you know, spent more time with my spouse before our marriage kind of fell apart. So we have these types of regrets and oftentimes we skate over regrets. So, so we can look at our regrets as well as a pointer to our values. What is it that you regret? And what does that say about what you care about? And ACT does a lot of that work. Like it's not all about like warm fuzzies and positive psychology anymore. Now it's like, what's, what's dark and dirty in there and let's go there because it says a lot about you and what's important to you. And so where does that crossover point? Because there is that part, but then there's also being able to, you know, change the way that you're telling yourself a story about something. So you could say, Oh, I'm experiencing envy. Envy is bad, blah, blah, blah. Or you could say I'm experiencing envy. Well, now it's teaching me something. Um, you are like changing the way that you're talking to yourself about envy, but you're also using this mindfulness-based approach. And then your behavior might change too because of that. Right. So that is another pro. So I'm kind of alluding to these six processes and I'm just going to spell them out because <laughs> it's like helpful. Okay. So psychological flexibility has six core processes, sort of like sides of a Rubik's cube. And one side is going to influence another side. They've all been demonstrated through research. They're evidence-based to be effective in enhancing your performance and improving things like anxiety and depression. Okay. So we've talked about the acceptance side. We've talked about a mindfulness side, and we're now talking about another side. When you say changing your story, which is the perspective taking side, which is we all have belief systems another type of therapy, they'd call it schemas. We have stories about ourselves and we can become flexible with our belief systems and stories about ourselves and take perspective on them and stories about other people and take perspective on those. And when we are more flexible with those stories and choose the stories that serve us. So it's choosing what story would help me reach my goals in life and my values. None of these stories are true or not true. They all have, you know, it's like when they asked, you know, adult siblings about their childhood, they will tell completely different stories. <laughs> Ask your siblings sometime, like, what was, what was the holiday, you know, what was your holiday experience when you were, you know, a kid? And one will say, oh, it was terrible. Another will say it was great, right? So we all store, we are storytellers. Humans um, create narratives to explain our experience. But when we become inflexible in our stories and we're unable to take perspective on them, then that can lead us to another roundabout of getting stuck and maybe not taking risks, maybe not playing big, maybe believing something, whether it's a positive self-story, like I'm smart. Kids that believe and are told that they are smart have more of a fixed mindset. They will not solve the puzzle as long, right? And the same is true for us as adults. I, I work with tons of you know, high-performing executive folks that have really like positive stories about themselves. It doesn't work so well when that story doesn't come true or when you're unable to, to be flexible with it. So that's another side of the Rubik's Cube. Those are three sides. And then the other three sides are about your thoughts, how you relate to your thoughts. In ACT, we do something called cognitive diffusion, which is your ability to step back from your thoughts and observe them. And then values, which is a side we've already talked about. And then the last side is committed action, which is that behavior side I've mentioned of, of how are you going to put this into action with your daily habits, with your tiny moves on a regular basis so that you kind of water the seeds that you want to grow in your life. 
Yeah. And if people listening want a great primer, they should pick up your act daily journal book. Cause I think that's a really great description and also good, good practices uh, to work on a bunch of those things. I want to take one thing that you said and then roll with it. It's, it was about the executives that you work with that have a positive story, or maybe they have a goal that they're working towards. And then when that goal doesn't work, and a lot of times people do set these outcome-based goals that you don't always have control over. And like the athletes listening are like, oh yeah, like I've set goals. Like I want to have a certain race result. That's like an outcome-based goal that isn't going to serve you very well because you can't control what anybody else is going to show up to the start line with. And you can't control some of the things that are going to happen out on the race course. So it's more about that process, but then there's the striving piece and it's like, well, why are you, why, why do you need to, you know, have that goal and what are you trying to feel versus what are you trying to achieve? And those types of questions. So I just, I want to bring up, how do we have a healthy relationship with ambition and striving while holding all of these principles? Great. So yes, I, I mentioned that I have an ambivalent relationship with striving. I've described it as my frenemy. It's my frenemy. Actually, a lot of times what people say to high achievers, perfectionists, and strivers, it's just like, don't do it. Don't be so perfectionistic. Don't work so hard. And I want to punch them when someone says that to me. I'm like, well, then what do I do with all this drive that I was born with? Like, I just, I'm a high achiever. I'm a striver. And it's more, I think it's more of like, how do we harness it and get it moving in the right direction? What if you, I used to have this sticker on my water bottle when I was working with, um, I was in a college counseling center at UC Davis and, and it said, my thighs carry me up the mountain. And I was working with clients with eating disorders at the time. And I would say, okay, so if we took the energy that you're putting into making your thighs not touch each other <laughs> and we put them into climbing, what mountains would you want to climb in your life? What matters enough to you? How could you harness that energy and shift it? So outcomes, I'm not like, I actually think outcomes are great. You know, I'm a big fan of like remodeling your kitchen and celebrating, hitting the end of the race and being like, yes, I did it. You know, being pregnant and having a baby. But if we think that the outcome is the end, <laughs> It's like, now you have a baby friend. <laughs> it's not the outcome. <laughs> now you have a whole another process to deal with. So we are, we are so trained up um, in our society to focus on outcomes that we neglect process. And part of being in process is one, being able to shift our ideas around like self-esteem and start moving towards self-compassion. So like, it's not about like being a better person. You already are a good person. There's nothing that you need to do. You were born good. You are good. You are whole. You are good enough. So we start there with like, I start with, with wholeness. And then the next step is sort of also being in the moments as they happen. When there is the positive outcome, taking in and savoring that good. This feels so good. And can I stay in it long enough? Because more often than not, what people do is they run through the finish line and they're already thinking about the next race they need to run, right? When you look at studies of medalists, gold medalists, silver and bronze, silver medalists on that platform do not look as happy. And this is through, they've done this through, you know, visual inspection, but also computerized inspection. Like why is the silver medalist unhappy? Why can't they take in the good of what they've done? right? Because there's comparison. There's the feeling I could have been, you know, better than what I was rather than being in and sort of taking in the good as you go along. So that's another aspect, but 
that day when I wrote down all of those striving things, the, the night that I woke up, I also wrote down a list of knowings, you know, sort of what I know for myself around what healthy striving or skillful striving could look like. And I, I wrote down things like setting goals based on my values, prioritizing important domains of my life, pausing to take in the view, being present while working hard, balancing effort with surrender, having wholesome purposes, taking rest, even when I feel guilty, even when that discomfort shows up, setting clear boundaries, working to benefit the greater whole, and choosing a cooperative, interconnected mindset over a competitive, individualistic one. So that's what, if we start striving for some of those things, it can be a totally different type of mountain that we're climbing. Yeah, I really like that list. Um, I'm sure that that wasn't an easy list to just put together. I really like the one about not feeling guilty about resting because I think a lot of people listening to this podcast feel compelled to just go, 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 go. And whenever they do stop and take a break, they feel guilty for it and they feel like they should be hustling. I want to pause you. I didn't say not feeling guilty Mm. when you are resting. I said resting, even though you feel guilty. Thanks. (laughs) Yeah. And there's a distinction there because oftentimes we, we tell ourselves like, I shouldn't feel guilty. Of course you feel guilty. You have been fed the Kool-Aid of rest is equals guilt since you were a child, you know, like what happens when you were a teenager and you really needed to sleep in until noon? What did your parent tell you? Get out of bed, you lazy bum. (laughs) Right. And we've been fed it forever that resting is um, guilt. So you will feel guilt. And you can respond to, okay, there's my guilt. What's my value? My value is actually to let my body heal, to sleep and know that all that like growth hormone is being released while I'm sleeping, all that repair, all that autophagy, all that whatever is you know happening in your body when you're sleeping. And taking care of my body will allow me to play my sport, right? So the guilt won't go away. You may notice a benefit of guilt reducing over time. If you do deliberate repeated practice of opposite action to guilt, same thing with anxiety, you know, as you move towards something, even though I feel anxious, you may see a change in the anxiety, but you have to be careful because as soon as you hook onto attached to that, like, Ooh, this makes me not feel anxious. Then all of a sudden you're in the same belief system that got you there. And we can't fix a belief system with the same belief system that got us trapped. We need to have a different belief system. So the different belief system is I will move towards my values, even though I have discomfort, thoughts of guilt, feelings of restlessness, and my values right now are to rest. Athletes actually already know how to do this very well, because there's a lot of being about being an athlete where you are moving towards a value, even though you have discomfort. So you're, you're working up a hill and you feel I'm a long distance runner and I run up there's a hill up, up behind my house called Gibraltar, which is really well known. The tour to California goes up it, and um, a lot of elite athletes go up this mountain at La Cumbre Peak. And there's, you know, like a 12% grade on parts of this hill. And when I'm running, I'll run past bikers. It's really satisfying because it's so steep. <laughs> um, but there are moments where you feel like total discomfort and your head says, I can't do this. And you keep going, right? So we can use that same mentality of acceptance and moving towards our values, but then tweak it to, okay, I'm having one of those moments, which is I'm taking a rest day 
or I'm feeling guilty and it's uncomfortable, but I can still move towards my values. I know if that makes sense, that tweak. Yeah, it does. And and I, but I also want to say that like for athletes and something I've had to learn over the last couple of years is rest. Isn't just a physical thing. Like you need, there's mental rest that you need. And a lot of us will be like, okay, well, I'm not training as hard. So I'm going to over strive. I'm going to like work extra hours. I'm going to do all these extra things. And then you're still avoiding the rest because you just replace it with mental striving. Right. Symptom substitution is what we call that in the world of psychology. It's like, I'm not drinking anymore. I'm not, but I'm smoking, (laughs) you know? So we just, we all have our like hiding, you know, our ways of avoiding and we just switch from one avoidance strategy to another. Absolutely. I think that, well, I'm speaking personally, but I think that a lot of people can relate with this is that I think a lot of us overstrive because we're searching for enoughness and wholeness. Like I'll be good enough if I can achieve X. And that's something that I personally have had to wrestle with and, and work with. And that comes back to what you're saying about like being whole without needing the achievements, but like, it's not that easy to untangle from that. So, and I don't even know if you can, actually can. So how can people strive even when they realize they're doing it because they're trying to be validated or they're trying to feel like they're enough? How can people strive? Strive in a way. Healthily. Yeah. Yeah. In a way. So mm-hmm. if, even if they realize, well, the, the main reason why I have these tendencies to overdo it is because I'm still trying to feel like I'm enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I would, I would sit with that for a bit. That's a sad place to live. And maybe there's sadness to navigate there of, I don't feel like I'm enough. And so I do all these things and I keep on doing more and more and more. And all of a sudden you're like me in the middle of the night working, right? Like there's sadness. And what am I avoiding? Like, what is the feared unwanted experience? And could I go there for a little bit? And could I make space for that and be willing to be with myself in that? I think that sometimes this perspective taking skill can also be really helpful. And the perspective taking on striving is sort of imagining that you're an X marks the spot of your life right here, right now, this is the striving that I'm caught in. This is the not enoughness. But if I look back on my life and I like look to the left, which is the timeline that goes back to when I was younger, could I find another time when I was caught in something similar and that feels familiar? Like, I, like it's, we're in the same trap, right? Sort of like a bird that's caught in the house and keeps on throwing itself at a window. <laughs> you know, we do the same thing over and over again, thinking we're gonna get different results. So Remembering that younger version of you, and if you could go back to that younger version of you, how would you feel towards them? What advice would you give them, right? And then the same is true of like, here we are in the X marks the spot of all of this feels so important right now, my problems and my striving and my, you know, feel so important. If I were to look to the right of the timeline of my life, see an older version of me, who knows what it's like to be me, like no one else knows. Like I know what it's like to be the younger version of me, like no one else knew. If this older version of me, that's a little bit further down the road, were to come to me and give me some advice, what would they tell me? So zooming out a little bit from what we're so caught up in and feels so important right now can be really helpful in kind of loosening up some of our striving. Because if you struggle with unhealthy striving, you will continue to struggle with that. Probably, you know, these things, they come around again and they come around when you're stressed. They also, we also live in a culture. I would add that striving is one reason why we strive is from not good enoughness. 
that's from our threat system being activated. But another reason why we strive is because our, our drive system is activated, our dopamine system. So threat is very amygdala-based. Drive is very dopamine-based. And dopamine is, is a craving or a hormone that will lead you to never feeling satisfied. There's an incredible woman named Anna Lemke, who's the um, director of the addiction center at Stanford. And I had an opportunity to interview her about her book called The Dopamine Nation. And what she talks about is, is basically dopamine peaks as we move towards that pursuit, whether that pursuit is a race or that pursuit is, you know, a bong, right? So the dopamine peaks. And then what happens is then dopamine drops and it drops low, like lower than where it started. So then we have to go do that thing again to just get ourselves back to normal. And we are, what Anna said is like, we are like cactuses in an ocean of dopamine. <laughs> every time you look at your phone, every time you eat food, every time you get on, there's now, I think on the Peloton, there's like the stride. My girlfriend was like, you're going to love it. There's like the striding score on the Peloton. I'm like, oh my gosh, shoot me now. <laughs> right there. We are getting so much feedback that, of, of, to do more. Right. So a lot of it is not our fault. As Paul Gilbert would say, it's not your fault, but it's your responsibility to do something differently. And sometimes that takes some perspective taking of like what really matters here. What's my wise self say about it? Sometimes it also takes some, a little bit of dopamine detox, a little bit of self-binding. Like I'm not going to wear my Apple watch today. What would happen? Could be a good thing. Yeah. So sometimes it's like realizing that you're going to be okay, even if you don't get those dopamine hits repeatedly. And yeah, I think the fascinating thing about dopamine is that it's at the highest before, like not after you get the thing, but in anticipation of the thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's not a satisfaction neurohormone. It doesn't make you feel contentment. It, it makes you feel like you want something and the wanting craving state is, is sort of the hungry ghost or very dissatisfied place to be. You can feel it. You just feel it. It doesn't, I don't feel content. And that's why I really like, you know, one of my mentors is Rick Hansen. And a lot of his work is around cultivating some of these states of good enoughness, contentment, turning toward like in moment, like on a daily basis, starting to like cultivate that for yourself. Like right now, I feel like I have enough and feeling that in your body and lingering on it so that that sort of neuroplasticity gets built because there's so much that's in our culture that's saying you, you don't, and you aren't enough. Uh, so we have to kind of be our own within our own selves, cultivate something different. I think that's why it's, well, for me, it's why it's so important to spend time with real people in real life, because it's really easy to get into that comparison mode and that looking around, especially when you're online and you're have a lot of work and life online. But I notice that when I'm around like friends or just people in my neighborhood, like it's, it's a really different feeling than if I'm having a digital relationship. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that we can ha have, it's interesting during COVID, we all develop these digital relationships and we've kind of forgotten that some of these people we've never met in real life because maybe we've been friends with them for two, three years and don't even realize it. I think that there's ways that we can approach our digital relationships that are a little bit more effective. So um, certainly when we're not, when we're working without video and when we're working without voice tone, we have less access to um, a lot of the nonverbal communication that makes us feel connected as humans. 
we communicate a lot through our facial signaling and through our voice tone. And actually those two forms of communication are prioritized over the content. But the way in which we communicate a lot online is just through text. And so when that, when that happens or when we're in short, you know, short little bits of text, we lose a lot of context and we lose a lot of connection. So one of the things that I do is I, you know, I, trend, I tend to like leave voice memos for friends instead of texting, try and do video when I can, when my eyes aren't fried from it. Uh, but yeah, it's hard. It's hard, this online square, little squares world. Yeah. And especially with like remote work where you might default to text and email. And these are all business relationships that you have where you lose a bunch of that connectedness and even nuance and communication if you're just reading text. Yeah. The other thing that I think that we can do a better job of is transitioning in and transitioning out. If you were to like meet someone in in the workplace in person, there would be just sort of that, or when someone comes to my therapy office, there's just this natural kind of like slowness of the transition in, you're settling in, you're acknowledging each other. But often in these online environments, we're like, boom, go. And we don't pause and acknowledge each other and take a breath and be like, hey, how are you doing? How's the day going? What's, what's up for you? Because we we are trying to maximize our hour, right? Or maximize our time. But being more efficient with your time doesn't make you feel like you have more time. It actually makes you feel like you have less time. I love that. That's so true. Yeah. So if you want to feel like you have more time, which a lot of people complain, they don't have enough time. If you want to feel like you have more time, get present in the time that you have, like fully get into it. Body, eye contact, in your breath, noticing what's happening in the here and now. And then a minute can feel way longer than trying to pack a lot of stuff in to be more efficient. I have one more question for you before we go. And it's like, how can people celebrate their results better because, or their success is better? Cause you, you said earlier, like, yeah, they'll like move on to the next thing. You know, a striver will just like achieve something, move on what's next. Or also people will um, diminish their success. Like, oh yeah, well I did the thing, but so-and-so wasn't there or this, what, this wasn't good enough. So people will either rush or diminish. So how do you, or what do you use your recommendation on how to like pause and celebrate these, these moments without them getting away and moving on to the next? Right. So I think athletes kind of already know how to do this because you do it with food and with, with hydration along the race. If you're in a longer race, you're hydrating and sometimes you're fueling along the way. And at the end you do a big fuel and a big hydration, right? So one way to really be able to take in and download our our outcomes and our successes is to do this type of psychological hydration along the way. Taking in the moments of like, wow, I got to this part, this mile, this feel, like feel it in your body. And I really believe in body-based practices. So like, what does it feel like in my body to be here right now and acknowledge that? And then at the end, when you get there, spend some time. And there's ways that you can spend some time on it. You could write about it. Tell the story of your experience. Retelling stories of our experience is what helps our experience encode into our memory. The more times we tell it, the more likely we're going to remember it. So it makes it real. So tell the story of your experience to yourself and tell the story, you know, or write it down on a, you know, in your journal. And then acknowledge the values that, that you embodied in this race. How are you the type of person that you wanted to be? So 
I would say hydrate psychologically, refuel psychologically in the same way that you do with food and water. And it will be really nourishing to you because then you'll over time feel more full. And when you feel more full, you don't have to strive as much unhealthily, at least. (laughs) Yeah. You have such great metaphors. I love it. Thanks. Yes. Metaphors are like the cornerstone of act. So it's like (laughs) put the way that we communicate and you have to choose metaphors that are appropriate for the person to notice. I'm not talking about truck driving because you told me you're an athlete. (laughs) I learned that a long time ago with talking with clients and using, using metaphors that were not uh, lined up with, with their context. Yeah. I actually bought uh, Jill Stoddard's book, the metaphors book. Um, Mm -hmm. I haven't read it yet, but I'm excited to check it out. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. Great. What are some resources that people can look at or read or experience if they want to go deeper into some of these concepts? Yeah. So I would say the ACT sort of big book is A Liberated Mind by Stephen Hayes. So ACT was developed by Stephen Hayes, Kelly Wilson, and Kirk Strassel in the 80s. And Steve Hayes came out with a book, I think it was in 2020, called The Liberated Mind that goes through all of these concepts of psychological flexibility. And it does have a whole chapter on performance and outline some of the sport performance as well. It's been an interest of his and recent area of his. If you want the, you know, breakdown of the different components that I mentioned, Act Daily Journal that I co-wrote with Debbie Sorensen is sort of like how to put into practice in your life. I have a a course for uh, lay people, which is one of the few courses out there on foundations of ACT. And a lot of the work in ACT has been primarily, you know, sort of like I train therapists or I train other clinicians or healthcare workers, but I really thought it was important to make a course for the general public of like, how do you do this in your life if you're interested in that? So you could check out my foundations of ACT course on my website, drdianahill.com. I also have on my website, this like fun little ACT vision board that you could sign up for. And then it downloads, it talks, it, it has an overview of all those six processes, the Hexaflex um, Rubik's Cube I talked about. And it's a little quick handout. So if you want that for free, that's on my website as well. And then finally, join me at Your Life and Process podcast, because every week I talk about different processes related to ACT and psychological flexibility, and I give practices for you to apply in your daily life. It's a very applied podcast. Yeah. And I'll I'll personally say I really enjoy that podcast. So people should definitely give it a listen. Thank you. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show and sharing all this great wisdom and perspective with us. And I'm sure that people are going to really enjoy this. Great. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks so much for listening. I am so grateful to Dr. Diana Hill for coming on the podcast and for sharing her knowledge. Make sure that you check out her podcast and her book to continue along on your journey. And speaking of journeys, I'm with you on this journey of personal growth, adventure, and our mission to be better every day. And I'll see you right back here next week.